AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. You are listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I walk like a G, talk like a wimp. Rappers, I feast like lobster and shrimp. Mac on the track, song, I'm a pimp. Medieval time tells Zed, get the gimp. Now the shit done changed as a unity call. When they had their chance, they was building a wall. I ain't shaking no hands, I don't feel them at all. Yo, didn't y'all lose? I don't listen to y'all. No. <laughs> hey, this is Lingua Franca. I'm Dope Knife, and we, we are, are waiting on reparations. Hurry up. Please do. So, what you got going on? On my end, you know, it's um, Black History Month, as we all know. And I'm very pleased that this month, after almost two years of working on um, trying to get reparations for folks displaced by urban renewal here in Athens in the 1960s, as I feel like I've discussed on previous episodes, we finally have um, a resolution um, recognizing the harm that was done to them and their families when the university and the city of Athens conspired to have them moved out of their neighborhood for dormitory expansion in, in the 1960s. Um, we're going to be building a, a wall of recognition on the site where their neighborhood used to be so that um, students that traverse that corridor frequently can understand a bit of the history of the land on which they stand. And we're hoping it's the beginning of continued work in getting some state laws changed so that we can actually provide some material redress for the losses um, they incurred. These properties that were taken from their families would today be worth you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so thinking about how we can um, get that money back in their hands and sort of recoup some of the financial losses sustained as a part of that um, is ongoing work. But we're really pleased we finally made it this far. 
And um, the mayor of Athens will be reading a proclamation formally apologizing for urban renewal later this month. So we're like not only just talking about black history in terms of forgotten figures in our national historical landscape, but thinking locally about the history of black communities here and how we can honor them this month, which I think think is really exciting. What you got? You know, just chilling, living. Oh, my mom's got her uh, first dose of the vaccine. So that's cool. Been making music. Oh, speaking of, you know, I feel like since we've been doing this, I've been pretty good at being ethical. <laughs> like, I don't get up here and hawk music at people all the time. But I do have a new song that I'm putting out on the 12th of February. So I think like next Friday. So that's exciting. Getting ready for that. So tell me a little bit about the song. Oh, it's called Sundance. It's a little love song I'm putting out for Valentine's Day. <laughs> so it's like wildly off brand. Actually, it's it's a funny story behind it. My um, there was an ex that I had, and I'd written it for her. It was like a sweet ass, you know, love song, just about our relationship and shit like that. And then we broke up, like maybe two weeks after I wrote it. So I never really used it for anything because I was like, man, I don't even feel none of this shit anymore. But next thing you know, it's been like seven or eight years. Me and her are still good friends. And uh, I don't know how it came up, but I let her hear a demo. And she was like, oh, yo, why didn't you ever put that out? So, you know, she, she got on me enough that I ended up re-recording it as part of like all these new songs that I was making. So, you know. It's a good, good, different thing to have there. I'm going to be putting out a lot of ignorant shit afterwards, so it's like a good way to get <laughs> my feet back into shit. But yeah, now I'm excited about it. Um, uh, it's been it's been a minute since I put out some new music, so there's all the excitement that comes with that sort of shit. And I'm going to start, you know, putting out like songs on the regular while I'm working on an album, you know, just so I'm not inactive and shit, so exciting times for me I'm, I'm excited for people to hear my lockdown raps that i wrote <laughs> so that's gonna be february 12th and it, it'll be on all the streaming shit wherever you listen to shit you'll be able to find it all right let's get to it so to set up what we're going to be talking about today kind of got to give you a little bit of a backstory as to why i was thinking about this in the first place so it very much involves recent events and things that are going on in politics right now So in the wake of the Capitol riots a few weeks ago, while Republican politicians have stood pretty strong by their former disgraced president, there's been a wider public backlash against the Trump-fueled assault. Not only do an overwhelming majority of Americans not support what happened, but 58% of Americans directly blame Trump, according to NPR PBS poll. Now, if you ask a nigga like me, 58% is not nearly enough, so everyone should be alarmed by that. (laughs) But um, there is 18% of Republicans who fully support this shit. Like, they they are 100% behind what happened on January 6th. And apparently that's who elected Republicans in Congress are representing at this point. Regardless, the backlash has been severe for them so far. A lot of America's biggest companies are suspending donations to Republican Congress members who objected to the Electoral College's votes, including American Express, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Commerce Bank, Dow Chemical, Marriott, Airbnb, Amazon, AT&T, Comcast, Disney, MasterCard, Ford, Google, Facebook, and more. Um, Speaking of Facebook, as 
many of us probably know, social media companies banished Trump, permanently suspending his Twitter account. He's been kicked off Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, as well as like TikTok and others. Um, though it's unclear the permanence of those suspensions. The conservative alternative for Twitter, Parler, was banished from app stores and essentially rendered inaccessible as it became a cesspool for QAnon and Nazis just straight up planning kidnappings and murders out in the open and shit. Then there was Senator Josh Hawley, who is one of the leading members of the Treason Caucus, who was so upset that he couldn't make black people's votes not count that he just had to help Trump inspire a riot that killed a cop. But he ended up losing his Simon & Schuster's book deal, and he's asked her about that. All this, along with the fact that people who participated in the riots have been getting put on no-fly lists, losing jobs, getting divorced, being called terrorists, the American right has begun to screech about their new favorite part of the culture war, cancel culture, as they feel all this accountability is part of argument that they're being canceled. So today we're going to be talking about cancel culture what it is, what it isn't, what we think of it, and what has hip-hop's reaction been to it in this new climate that we're in. Later on, we're also going to be chatting with hip-hop artist and professor at Bryant and Stratton College in Buffalo, NY, Chucky Campbell, about his newest album, The Curious Incidents in Cancel Culture, and see if he can help us shed some light on this a little bit. We're going to get into all of that after the jump. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a fifty percent discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July fourteenth. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
Okay, so what is cancel culture? Well, you guys know how I love my Wikipedia results, so let's see what Wikipedia has to say. Okay, so if you search cancel culture on Wikipedia, what it says is, cancel culture is a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of a social or professional circle, either online, on social media, in the real world, or both. Those who are subject to this ostracism are said to be canceled. Merriam-Webster's notes that to cancel, as used in the context, means to stop giving support to that person. While Dictionary.com, it says, in its pop cultural dictionary, defines cancel culture as withdrawing support or canceling a public figure and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. The expression cancel culture has mostly negative connotations and is commonly used in debates on free speech and censorship. The notion of cancel culture is a variant of the term call-out culture and constitutes a form of boycott involving an individual, usually a celebrity, who is deemed to have acted or spoken in a questionable or controversial manner. For those at the receiving end of cancel culture, the consequences can lead to loss of reputation and income that can be hard to recover from. So that's what you have in on Wikipedia. I mean, I... I mean, I guess I agree with that when, you know, if I hear the term cancel culture, I imagine that most reasonable people kind of are thinking this when they hear the term cancel culture. I mean, scratch that. I don't even know what people think now. I mean, there's been so much. It's been propagandized so much that it's like, I I don't even know what people are thinking. And maybe everyone just like automatically thinks of like screeching hordes of purple-haired Antifa or something now because <laughs> when they think of cancel culture or people being canceled, I don't know. What do you think about this definition? I feel like um, the Wikipedia definition of cancel culture does neglect that financial element. I mean, I guess if you're thrust out of your professional circle with that comes some um, financial harm, like loss of income, salary. Um, we're seeing, you know, with the Republican Party, um, loss of donations from big companies, which actually I want to point out that some of these companies um, have suspended donations to all political campaigns. So it's like, great. Glad we're finally getting money out of politics. But like this both sidesism that's a little ridiculous. It's kind of funny. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I mean, I think these are pretty apt. The Merriam-Webster, you know, stop giving support for that person. Support can be material, social, um, et cetera. So I feel like that gets at it pretty well. I would, I would, um, say that a key thing that's missing from this definition is discussion of accountability. That this to me is a form of accountability. Um, that's like, yo, we're going to hold you accountable by, you know, punishing you for what you've done. It's interesting to me that, that accountability is not really included among the way this, uh, Feature of our society and media landscape is defined. Conservative political analyst Ross Duthat wrote a piece for the New York Times titled 10 Theses About Cancel Culture. And it's an interesting piece of insight into how traditional conservatives interpret and view things. To his credit, he doesn't frame it as a First Amendment issue, which many conservative types do. Perhaps the most telling thing is what he, what he chose as his first thesis. 
Cancellation, he says, properly understood, refers to an attack on someone's employment and reputation by a determined collective of critics based on an opinion or an action that is alleged to be disgraceful or disqualifying. Uh, reputation and employment um, are key terms here. You're not simply, you're not being canceled if you, um, you're not being canceled if you're merely being heckled or insulted. Yeah. So like, what are your overall, what's just your, your overall view on cancel culture? I mean, I have interesting thoughts on, on cancel culture as an abolitionist, one that does believe in transformative justice as a means of holding people accountable for the harm that they do others, but also calling them in to see, see what they've done wrong, to understand how they've harmed others, to or change their behavior, change their thinking so that they don't harm others in future. And so I worry at times that cancel culture um, replicates like carceral logics of banishing someone, just putting them some other place, be it a physical space of a prison or casting them out of a social circle or, you know, um, stripping them of their of their networks um, that is, is, is ultimately is ultimately harmful. But at the same time, I don't really understand what you <laughs> I don't really understand what else you can do with some people like um, take, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene having um, expressed support for the executions of prominent Democratic lawmakers um, and things like that. And, and seeing how the rhetoric of, um, you know, stolen election inspired uh, a deadly mob that ended up uh you know, seeing the lives of five people taken, the, you know, two police officers who took their own lives in the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol. Um, like the lack of remorse, the lack of self-reflection, um, willingness to engage in like, yeah, <laughs> like uh, reflection on one's actions, uh, 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 resistance to accountability of any kind. Like, I really don't understand what else we can do with these people other than like, all right, you're in timeout until uh, you get your act together. And if you don't, at least you're not enabled to continue harming people by having the material resources to um, engage in campaigns that, you know, wage war on the vulnerable or, you know, having these platforms where you can inspire further violence, things like that. Like, I really don't know what else we can do. I'm really interested to hear others and read others weigh in on this from an abolitionist perspective. It's like, if somebody really doesn't want to engage in accountability, really, really doesn't want to engage in the process of accountability, like what else are you supposed to do with them? So, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad thing to hold people accountable. I don't think it's, I think it, it can be helpful to inspire that reflection by <laughs> showing people like your actions have consequences. Like you can't have your fancy platform or your cushy job if you fuck around and hurt people um, to maybe step back and be like, hmm, all right, this sucks. Um, maybe I should uh, think about how my actions have harmed others. Um, so yeah, I don't really know what other option we have in this day and age. Though I do think like engaging with thinking around what accountability can look like that brings people in and helps transform their behavior is really important to do. I tend to look at what is the opposite of that. So if there's there's definitely 
mad instances where quote unquote cancel culture can be like cringe. And there's even some instances where it can kind of be dangerous and can kind of just be like, hey, go with the mob, whatever, whatever, I'm mad. But the opposite of that is like just straight up bigotry and, (laughs) you know, so I don't know, like I can deal with the annoyance and cringe factor better than I could deal with it if just nobody gave a fuck and there was zero accountability for anything. However, I personally don't see the use in using activism or organizational or boycott energy over stupid shit. You know what I'm saying? And among stupid shit, I'd be like, yo, why why are we organizing over like who's getting a Netflix special or who's going to be in this movie or who's voicing this character or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I I would rather that energy solely be put to more important shit. And then once we get through the checklist of important shit that we have to do, then I guess we can direct some energy to that. And I know people can chew gum and walk at the same time. So whatever. But again, at the end of the day, that's the aspect of the shit that bothers me is like, damn, yo, y'all are using all this energy over, over that shit. But other than that, yeah, it's just, it's just annoying. It's not really like, I don't see it as a, as like this thing that is dominating society and is going to make society collapse. A writer by the name of Sarah Hagee wrote an article for Time Magazine called Cancel Culture Isn't Real, at least not in the way that people think. And she made a pretty good point in this passage here. She says, the idea is that if you do something that others deem problematic, you automatically lose all your currency, your voice is silenced, you're done. Those who condemn cancel culture usually imply that it's unfair and indiscriminate. The problem with this perspective is cancel culture isn't real, at least not in the way that people believe it is. Instead, it's turned into a catch-all for when people in power face consequences for their actions or receive any type of criticism, something that they're not used to. And that right there at the heart of it is why I just don't really fuck with people who complain about cancel culture like that. And and I would disagree with there that it's not necessarily a thing about rich or powerful. It's just people in general, like people are starting to wrap that shit up at any and all criticism. I think um, Ms. Haggie is completely on point with this. Um, It is turning into a catch-all for when people in power face any kinds of consequences for their action or receive any type of criticism. Um, Like, I don't know if J.K. Rowling has experienced any sort of financial hardship as a result of her transphobic comments that have led her to, you know, cry cancellation. Um, Like, from what I understand, bitch still got books coming out and shit. So, I mean, like, when people are simply getting heckled online, as I believe Mr. Do That was talking about in his um, New York Times piece, and they want to call it cancellation, it's like, yo, like, chill. The internet is a harsh place. You fuck around, you find out, period. Um, getting heckled, getting criticized is not a, is not the same as being deplatformed, and people need to stop, stop complaining the two. So... I mentioned J.K. Rowling, but Margaret Atwood, Noam Chomsky, Gary Kasparov, Salman Rushdie, and over 140 other intellectual and 
cultural figures um, signed on an open letter um, called The Letter on Justice and Debate for Harper's Magazine, which criticized the current trend of public shaming and ostracism, public shaming and ostracism of those with opposing views, i.e. cancel truck culture. The thing with the letter is that caused a lot of, like, uh, caused a huge kerfuffle at the time, is that there's some dope people who signed it. There's some respected people, there are some grifters, there's definitely some kooks. The diversity of people that signed it was kind of the gimmick of it. Journalist Jeff Yang criticized the letter writing for CNN.com. It's hard not to see the letter as merely an elegantly written affirmation of elitism and privilege. And he said that the signatories, in the face of resultant backlash, dismissed rebuttals and positioned themselves as beleaguered victims of a current culture, turning their support for open debate and free expression into an example of stark hypocrisy or sly gaslighting. Public Seminar criticized the letter's timing, stating that the letter primarily blamed cancel culture for disrupting free and open conversation at a moment during the George Floyd protest when it was becoming clear what influences institutions had on controlling the debate. There's a dope article in the Washington Post about the letter by one of the people who signed it, uh, Phoebe Maltz Bovee, who also wrote The Perils of Privilege. And she breaks down in a nutshell pretty much what the problem is with the freak out over the cancel culture boogeyman and why it's important, you know, that regular people don't get caught up in that scene. She describes how she agreed with her understanding of the gist of the letter, quote, that writers should get to choose their topics and that progressive overcorrection helps Trump, while free speech sometimes serves as a euphemism for the right to hold forth a la Archie Bunker, spewing bigotry from the comfort of an armchair, consequence free, I happen to believe that's all it is. And she continues, but on a more principled level, I cringe. Here was a list made up of largely uncancelables, Margaret Atwood and J.K. Rowling, and high profile, and high profile usual suspects, Mark Lilla, Steven Pinker, and yes, a few expected, and yes, a few unexpected names here and there, Noam Chomsky. The message was, is sound, the messengers as a collective risk obscuring it. I mean, Noam Chomsky's gotten in trouble before for, I think, defending, if I recall correctly, a Holocaust denier, not for his beliefs, but for his right to publish work, um, uh, you know, about his beliefs. And so I, you know, wasn't super surprised to see his name there. A lot of people I don't fucking know, don't fucking care about. Um, but I just think it's interesting that, like, it's like an interesting reflection of like how cancel culture works where um, people are like on board with the idea until they realize that people are agreeing with them that they don't like. Um, where it's like, oh wait, wait, that person is down with this? That person is down with this? Where like cancel culture is okay as long as it's not happening to you or to someone that you agree with. Yeah, I fuck with that heavy. I mean, it's like we all want free and open debate but it's like, I don't want to, just me personally, it's like, I don't want to be associated with any whack shit when I'm trying to make, like, a good point. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. It's like, whatever objections to quote-unquote cancel culture that I may have, it's like, I don't want to express that shit because I don't want to be fucking associated with Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin. <laughs> like the, if you, you listen to those motherfuckers like cancel culture is worse than fucking climate change and shit so 
it's like when they're mucking up that argument against it, it's like, hey, you know, it's not really that important enough an argument for you to make. I'm just going to sit this one out. So today we are talking with a good friend of mine, Chucky Campbell. He is a professor at the Bryant and Stratton College in Buffalo, NY, where he teaches media and ethics, public speaking, information, literacy, learning communities, and almost any other writing and communication course at the college. He has a PhD in English literature, creative writing, and composition rhetoric from the University of Southern Mississippi. He's the winner of the Eastern Kentucky University Fiction Award, uh, the Julia Weiser Award presented by the National College Learning Center and Association, and numerous other awards. He's also a national touring hip-hop artist whose newest album, Curious Incidents in Cancel Culture, that's out right now. How are you doing, Chucky? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for inviting me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's good to have you. How, how are you holding up in these times? Um, about like everybody else. Very confused by all the strange things happening, but uh, for the most part, I'm doing well. Well, I mean, I'm, we're always curious as to, you know, people who are working artists and things like that, to how the new way of life as it is has, like, affected your craft and what you've been doing and how you had to change things up. Um, well, for somebody who's been supported by the gig economy for so many years and uh, relied so heavily on live shows and live events, um, it's been troubling trying to put t together things to coordinate people. And um, it's shifted everything online. A lot of my, uh, I would say, other work in terms of education um, is all remote learning. So that's, a, that's definitely a shift and a change. And it's shifted the way I do art out of the live environment, less of a performance space and more into the virtual world. So I've had to adjust to some of that. How in your experience with remote learning, if at all, have you encountered um, issues of educational equity with different folks access to things like broadband? I know down here um, in Georgia, I've had a number of students who come from rural areas and have had to like sit in the parking lot of a McDonald's to get Wi-Fi to attend the synchronous portions of our teaching. And I was wondering if you had experienced anything similar with your um, past remote learning during this time as well. Absolutely. I have a lot of students that, especially if you come from a disadvantaged background or low-income background, uh, you have less access to technology, less access to the internet, and uh, a lot of those students have been forced to try to find different methods um, of joining in in remote learning. In terms of the college, the college has offered some um, laptops and uh, things of that nature to try to help those students out, but um, unfortunately, there's only so much you can do especially when uh, a lot of your students are uh, from the background and from places like my students come from. And uh, what you were talking about in terms of rural environments, a lot of those same things carry over to uh, more urban uh, city-based environments as well. So just to backtrack a little bit, so could you tell us a, li a little about your um, your story as it were? Because you're a, you're a hip hop artist, you're a professor. So how did that come about? Um, so I'm, I'm basically a child of hip hop. <laughs> hip hop raised me, so to speak. Um, 
And uh, I grew up with it. It was initially, you know, I'm from a low income, high crime environment. Um, I grew up in uh, spaces besides the color of my skin. Uh, I really um, wasn't in a privileged environment. Um, and so hip hop was like my access to learning about my voice, my entrance into the world of ideas. It was like the reason I wanted to read books and challenge my thought, challenge myself with thoughts that were uh, just not uh, readily available to me. I would say at that moment. Um, so I started out like in Kentucky, actually. Like I'm from Richmond, Kentucky, um, and I used to, with one of my friends, travel down and participate in some of the mic battles and. Uh, that's how I really kind of was ushered into hip hop. It was a community um, that I was just a part of and a kind of way of life, a way of learning how to speak and talk and walk. And, you know, as I got older, you know, it became something else to me. I was not just a, a student of it. I became someone who also wanted to give back to it. So like what, what type of, uh, what, what artists were you listening to around that time? Uh, a lot of different ones because I was, I guess, Kentucky is a strange place. It's like not in the South and it's not in the North. It's like kind of not even Midwest either. So um, I was listening to everything, you know, coming up. Um, everything from like Tupac and Biggie to Outkast to No Limit to Freestyle Fellowship to, I mean, it was just so many different influences coming together. Um, there were a lot of like strict lines and divides in our hip hop community because um, a lot of those people who kind of are part of those different factions don't get along. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> But I mean, is that all like, it all converges in uh, Kentucky? Like, does, was there, is there no uh, strong, was there no strong local scene at the time? There was, uh, there was a strong local scene, but there were hard lines that divided it. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the scene that was in coming out of Lexington, you would have a lot of like really, really strong down south rap you know a lot of in the i would say vogue of say like no limit cash money records and then on the other side of that you had some very heavily like wu-tang uh east coast uh influenced music and those two groups while they were part of the same community didn't necessarily um talk to each other or collaborate very much so there wasn't a lot of like cross-pollination between those two styles um, yeah, and those two fan bases so it, as well. It, it kind of divided the community. So, so okay, so at this time, hip hop captures your imagination, and you're kind of learning about your voice through it. So then, what makes you actually pick up the pen and the mic and start rapping? Uh, I had a friend named Ralph Prater, uh, and uh, he was uh, in a group called Microphone, Microphone Fanatics at that time. And they were collaborating with another group named Mad Militia in, in Lexington. And um, I went to some battles with them. And then when I got like kind of brave enough to step on stage and do my own thing, because um, he kind of pushed me into that, um, I found out that it was something that I really liked. Um, after kind of that cultivated itself, me and Ralph started doing projects together. And uh, that grew its own legs in a certain way. Um, it wouldn't be till many years later that I would start releasing stuff like publicly. And it was first under a moniker named Soul Sleep. Um, 
was the when I first started putting out music, no one knew me as Chucky Campbell. So, so, I mean, if you were doing all of that at the same time that you know, obviously you were getting yourself educated and ready to like get into the career path that you're in. So, was that something that you always knew was going to be the case? Did you always know you were going to be putting as much time and effort into uh, your music as you were, as you are, you know, your teaching career? Um, not really at all. I mean, at first, I mean, like a lot of people that come from like low, low income, high crime environments, like I really wasn't uh, into um, my education very young. I came from a public school that was uh, really not funded well um, and had its own issues, you know, and so I didn't have a lot of people on that side of education and that was that were influencing me and uh, valued what I was doing. So I initially gravitated toward a- athletics. So I was a basketball player and uh, I earned a scholarship to play basketball at Lee University. Um, I played four years of college basketball there. Um, and then after that, uh, for a very short stint, some professional basketball before I hurt my knee. And then uh, when I came back after my knee injury, um, I had at that time kind of been balancing my academic life with hip-hop and rap music so i had dropped like a couple of eps and uh they did um i guess uh pretty well at that time for what for the kind of industry that there was for independent art and so i decided when i came back after i hurt my knee that i was going to move to nashville tennessee with my producer and we lived there for about a year and um I ran out of money. <laughs> so I ran out <laughs> yeah. of all the money that I had uh, professionally and built up from playing basketball. And then, so when we were forced to go back to Kentucky together, I was there probably for about five or six months before Ralph had moved back from Seattle, Washington. And so me and Ralph were talking about doing some stuff again, forming a, a live band and doing hip hop together. And uh, um, then there was in. Um, an issue between me and Ralph. I don't know if you want me to tell that story, but my um, my jaw was broken in two places. So I have two metal plates in my face. Um, and uh, that with the doctors initially after that happened, they told me I was not going to be able to rap again. So I stopped rapping for like seven years. Um, and during that time, my mother kind of helped me condition myself where I was able to articulate and, and speak again in a somewhat normal fashion. Most people can't tell that I've ever had that happen to me now. Um, but yeah, I, wouldn't, uh, I went off after that and channeled all that creative energy. Went back to school at Eastern Kentucky University, got my master's, and then uh, I won some awards and did some, uh, did some work in academia and then decided that I wanted to continue that work as teaching English as a second language. So I moved to China for probably six to eight months and taught in Beijing and Hainan and Shanghai. And then I got into a PhD program. How was the time that you spent overseas? Oh, it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I was learning some Mandarin Chinese at the time. It was like a language program, exchange program. And uh, a lot of the kids that we were teaching, we were teaching language, English language through English or American culture, I would say. And uh, a lot of the kids were very young, you know, elementary um, or middle school. 
So with the things that you learn and experience being an MC and performing and, you know, talking to crowds of people or even just putting ideas out there for people to respond to, does any of that translate into being an educator? Uh, yeah, I think I've almost learned the backward, you know, like it was almost like MCing was what taught me how to teach instead of like teaching helped my MCing out. So it was like kind of learning to project my voice, uh, learning uh, authenticity leads to true authority. Um, you know, some of the values that carry over in the, hip, in, in the culture of hip hop work well in the classroom. And they also work uh, well to inspire, uh, especially kids that have been kind of, um, have troubled us educational histories or backgrounds that don't necessarily uh, lend themselves to um, to wanting to read literature or engage in uh, in some more academic kinds of activities. So I think that hip hop is kind of what taught me about community and what allows people to come together and and stitch those uh, those ideas into one thing. Do hip hop texts or practices ever come into uh, your composition classrooms in terms of analysis or uh, as a jumping off place to discuss um, social issues or anything like that? All the time. I use uh, Kendrick Lamar a whole lot. I'm, uh, I use Lauren Hill a whole, whole lot. Um, uh, who's some other people? Recently, I've used Blueprint and some of his music. Uh, he has a song called Perspective that is a really good one. Um, Lupe Fiasco, uh, he has a song named Janila Forever, which is pretty like craftily written. And uh, we use that in terms of understanding reading, not just as words on a page, but reading in a more uh, kind of critical thinking sense, seeing the deep structure of things, understanding that uh, meaning often is kind of like Heming, Hemingway's uh, iceberg theory. Like, so the top and tip of the iceberg is what you see, but most of the meaning lies beneath it. And that meets kind of hand in hand theoretically with uh, another communication theorist that I implement, Michael Polanyi, who talks about communication has a tacit dimension where we often, when we speak, we mean more than we say and we say more than we mean. So I kind of t take those kinds of propositions into the classroom. Um, that's especially true of hip-hop, the way we sort of circumlocute through metaphor and through um, slang and stuff like that, sort of obscuring the meaning so that we do have this tip of an iceberg that is um, very aesthetic, but once you, you know, do repeated listens or sort of break down what people are saying, there's a lot more meaning there. Um, so there's a lot of uh, rich potential for um, exploration of hip-hop texts in the classroom generally. It was interesting to hear what particular artists have come into play in your classroom specifically. Right. I also think it's important that I have students that are performatively kind of expressing themselves through not just rap music, but the culture of hip-hop in the classroom as well. You know, like, so it's not as if I'm kind of just using hip-hop as a bridge. I'm actually giving hip-hop a voice in the classroom you know so it's not that i'm forcing them into academic culture it has to be a gateway 
Instead, academic culture and hip hop don't have to contradict themselves. You, so now, like, this is kind of a question for both of you because y'all are two people who I know personally in my life who are who teach and do hip hop. So, do you guys like see an even broader use for hip hop? Like, do you think that that um, there's a more of a, there's a, a more of an opportunity for teachers who have backgrounds like you guys to utilize just different aspects of hip-hop to like you know get messages across and to more effectively teach classes like does it work that way is there any yes <laughs> for sure i mean i i mean my whole i don't know if you've talked about this checky but my uh whole dissertation is on like hip-hop pedagogy and like the many decades of research people have put in to look at how we can use um poetic devices within hip-hop to teach poetic devices in Shakespeare, to use hip-hop to respond to literature, so giving um, students the opportunity to uh, respond to works of art using rap, as well as practices or, you know, mind states akin to, like, being in the cypher, for example, as a way to structure dialogue in the classroom, so both, like, the use of hip-hop texts and then the hip-hop practices more broadly with regards to, like, stances we take or um, sort of activities we engage in to build community, as, as you were kind of saying, Chucky. Um, but I... But I guess the problem we've seen in the research is that very oftentimes these practices of pedagogy are taken up by hip-hop heads and not as frequently actual hip-hop practitioners as it were, like folks like Chucky and I. Um, and so uh, it is interesting to hear from someone that does do hip-hop what uh, that looks like for them in their classroom. Right. And I, I think it doesn't just extend to education. I think it speaks to the importance of civil discourse and what education, where ed, those two lines come to come together or overlap. You know, I mean, hip hop, as even what Mariah's done, you know, politically, you know, the, the, it trains you and conditions you for those places once you evolve to, uh, to take them on, you know. So it's... It's a place where, like, I mean, it doesn't prepare you completely for all the things that are going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, sure. Once you take that spot. <laughs> um, but it, I think it's a training ground. So if um, just your, your, your opinion, the way that you see it, what is the uh, probably like the biggest obstacle in the way right now, like America's education system? Um, I think it's the opposite thing of what most people think it is. Like a lot of people think that, you know, the university system is all like left wing. In my experience, it's almost the opposite. It's very <laughs> yeah. um, conservative. And, uh, you know, I think that that's also being propped up right now by a number of voices and talking heads that are dangerous to civil discourse in our country. People like uh, Canadian Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, the intellectual Steve dark web. Yeah, yeah. Um, those the are derp, all the derp problems. web. <laughs> the, the derp web. I haven't heard that one. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I was really curious about some of your advocacy. I know that for a while you ran Hip Hop is Revolution, the music series in collaboration with Push Buffalo. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Right. Uh, Push Buffalo is an incredible organization. You know, uh, Push is uh, responsible for, you know, uh, keeping people off the streets almost at this point, like with rent control and all of those issues. And then 
they're also uh, deeply in, kind of entrenched in some of the more revolutionary t- talk about sustainable housing and the environment and where that meets economically with, with government. And so uh, I collaborated with a guy named John Washington and uh, John and me had this idea to, to uh, cover it up and, and begin a hip hop platform that not only brought in uh, heavily influential uh, political hip hop artists and matched them with some uh, local artists that also have that kind of tilt to their music and their, their art, but also um, inform the public too. So those events were, you know, used to um, get people involved in other parts of not just their political education, but also taking taking part in changing some of the unfair uh, properties about the way our society is formed and institutionalized. So what was the role of Hip Hopist Resolution in some of the organizing, what they were doing? Was it like sort of a recruitment space, educational? Like what, how, how were you using that event to advance some of their prerogatives? Well, we tried to bring in like anyone in the community that had a part in hip hop. So anyone that was related, even like from culinary arts and food to um, an entire like booths that have, uh, you know, information about how to organize. Um, I mean, the, the artists themselves kind of propping them up and giving them a stage to say what they need to say and voice their opinions and then matching them with um, artists that already have an audience and a crowd. So you're bringing out people that normally wouldn't come to an independent arts event. Yeah. And then kind of using that as a springboard to get people uh, interested in some of the more important uh, positions of our day. Um, Cause it's, I mean, really at this point, like we're in a slippery slope. I feel like almost a turning point in society and it's all of those, there's been many things that are working together to cause that to, uh, come about and get this outcome that we're all working through right now. So. So can you tell us a bit about the uh, new album? Oh, Curious Incidents and Cancel Culture. All right. Um, Really the the point of the, uh, the point I really, at this point, like for years I've been collaborating with like bigger artists and um, taking a whole different approach to rap music and uh, kind of like, instead of just doing whatever was stereotypical, just being as free as I could artistically. And so I had like the band and all of these different moving parts that uh, where we're doing all the touring and doing really high end music videos and, um, you know, collaborating with singers across the aisle from like folk music. That's the thing I want to, I just need to interject. You, y'all need to check out Chucky's music videos. Cause especially in the indie scene, like Chucky's videos are especially like, they look like Martin Scorsese films and shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, I think this project right here, we, um, so we, we noticed that most of what's happening with independent music right now is a lot of things are going visual you know, and since we're kind of confined to this virtual platform right now and we can't perform live, um, instead what I've done is I, I packaged an entire EP into a, a video project. And so there are six interconnected videos for each song. Um, right now, I think we've, we're in song two, um, but there's just a lot of heavy symboli- symbolism. And I wanted to speak directly to some of the confusion and chaos, um, things like... Um, you know, the 
boss of the apprentice becomes president <laughs> murder hornets you know like these <laughs> these crazy things that you could not have possibly foreseen potentially you know kind of happening and uh i feel like that's all too kind of put into like this this entire discourse about what cancel culture is too because there are good things that cancel culture does like a lot of a lot of uh there's a lot of good aspects to woke to wokeness and woke culture and to cancel culture because some some of these uh people who are being called out deserve to be and we should believe the people who are calling them out uh, i mean i think it's i think a lot of them who are getting called out deserve to be i just for me the thing that really grates me about the crowd that is like goes out of their way to be anti-cancel culture is just they treat it the, the things about cancel culture or woke culture, whatever you want to call it, that are at the worst annoying, they treat it as if it's like some giant incident that's going to make Western civilization collapse if, if we don't quell it right now. And it's like, well, the opposite of cancel culture is people just, you know, kind of being openly bigoted and shit. So it's like... Right. Yeah, like, and no zero one... accountability for one's like... <laughs> I don't know, yeah, bigotry or transgressions or just harm that are done to others. I kind of think that cancel culture is, you know, like a lot of things, good and bad. So um, mostly I feel like uh, it's a form of dissent and uh, a good form of dissent, a good form of kind of protest against um, things in society that are unfair or target unfair groups or people without lots of power. And so uh, cancel culture is good in the respect that it kind of um, allows the voices of the people to speak up against some of the injustices that consistently society doesn't a good, do a good job regulating or um, protecting people from. On the other side of some of this, it is a kind of, um, I would say, unchecked um, form of... Uh, of power I mean it's power in the people's hands but sometimes that can be good and bad depending on how much power is in whose hands so one of the things that um, has commonly been I would say an issue in our current media climate is that um, social media has made um, information flow in such a way where there's not um, a real um kind of fabric in society that we can truly trust. So um, I would say that when you ruin like that, that feeling of trust in a society, then also uh, solidarity kind of diminishes. And uh, that can be problematic for a lot of different reasons because um, there's no editor to edit all of these different pieces of information that are going out and coordinating to make meaning and make sense of the world for people. Um, and it's not that we would prefer like all corporate entities kind of control this and that the power flow from top to bottom all the time. But when there's no one checking to make sure something's true, then now you've put all narratives on an equal playing field. So people who have any sort of opinion um, and it seems that nowadays everybody thinks that they not only have a right to a, an opinion, but that all opinions are equal. 
it makes it harder to siphon out the good opinions from the bad opinions, a higher truth from a lower truth. And obviously, like, there are differences between that. I would much rather take an informed opinion, like, let's say, on race um, from someone like a Martin Luther King than I would an Adolf Hitler, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the idea there is that um, when you put, when narrative is the only thing that we have here, then uh, you have nothing to quantify, to test, um, to prove factually, right? So when you put facts up against alternative facts, it's just whoever has more power because each story is going against the other story. And uh, that's that's definitely an issue if you have, like, let's say a president who's saying fake news to everything that he doesn't like. And it's just kind of using the power of his pulpit to tell people whatever stories he wants them to believe, which could be kind of what uh, happened at the Capitol, you know. So what um what made you want to like uh, tackle this on your album? I think just because it's confusing, you know, like I think that there's no real straightforward, perfect answer to um, the, the current social climate we're in. We're, we're in a, a pretty dark place. And I feel that uh, what I was trying to tackle specifically is uh, the cognitive dissonance that comes with that. Um, also some of just the confusion about who to believe and what to believe and um, how the degradation of that entire fabric kind of leads us to this space where almost nothing is believable. We're in a very strange existential kind of situation. Um, so I felt that very real, you know, like um, some of the songs on the album tackle um, ageism, you know, the idea that, you know, you have this older generation uh, coming up and the younger people are calling them boomers and saying they don't, <laughs> they don't understand uh, the current generation and the way to do things and that they mounted up this huge amount of debt and put these and put these young kids in that debt. And then on the other side, the, the older generation is looking back and saying, well, you guys know nothing about the world. You're obsessed with um, social media and with uh, your Instagram pictures and Snapchat. And um, there is weight to both of that, to the, those things, you know? There is, but then it kind of gets stupid because like, <laughs> I had motherfucking try to call me a boomer and shit. It was like, yo, nah, I think I just think you're wrong. I'm six years older than you. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's where I'm kind of getting. I mean, if I had to stand on one side of cancel culture, I would stand with the people who are marginalized and, and fight for their voices yeah. to be heard. Um, I would, I would fight for, you know, women to be believed when they call out someone as, you know, a rapist or uh, someone who's uh, committed some of these grotesque kinds of crimes that just commit consistently go unchecked. Um, but then there's someone like, you know, maybe Dave Chappelle stands up and starts poking holes in some of that stuff. And it makes me think, I'm like, okay, well, you know, should we be able to call people out and make them guilty before proven in innocent in the um, social court of law, you know? Um, and so it, it does make me stand in that gray area because I don't want to just uh, slam the gavel and, and commit myself that everybody might be guilty of something that they've just been accused of before 
really taking my time to sift through the information and get my mind wrapped around some of this stuff. And, you know, I was dealing with this. I feel like it's been coming for a long time that, um, you know, some of the names that I just used on the album, like Tommy Laren and, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and, um, you know, uh, Kyrie Irving, you know, like whether you're talking about flat earth or you're talking about extreme right wing politics, um, that to me leads to almost fascism. Um, you know, all of that creates this kind of climate. And then when you combine that with this the isolation of the pandemic, you kind of have the perfect Petri dish for, um, yeah. <laughs> for, you know, Some bad craziness. stuff to go down. Yeah. Yeah. No, for real. Um, what are some standout tracks to you? Um, I really, my, personally, and I always like the tracks that I think other people don't <laughs> get into <laughs> as much, you know, I think because, I mean, when you're behind it writing it, it's different. But I really like the, the second track, Swipe Right. I feel like it, um, that line, um, in every human heart, there's a God-shaped hole. You know, that comes from uh, Sartre and existentialism and, you know, um, we do, I think everyone kind of fills that up with all of this stuff that is um, really kind of unhealthy. And it's it, it really, you, you can never achieve that original plenitude of being whole with everything again. Um, and so I feel like that's what's really appealing uh, about existentialism, especially right now. Um, but um, I think it sums up almost perfect what, people would do just for any sort of love right now, whether like they're getting likes or comments on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever it might be, or um, why they're listening to some of the stuff that sounds just ridiculous. You know, whether it's Alex Jones saying, though, I think he said something about the making the frogs, turn the frogs gay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, some of the things that people are believing you would think would be way too outrageous or out of bounds for them to believe but then again they're in um a space that they've never been in and it's a terrifying space full of fear and so you know someone believing like a QAnon, um you know conspiracy about you know wayfair selling children on the internet you know like as if it was a couch or something <laughs> you know like um that sounds crazy but in someone's mind where they're reinforcing these narratives consistently what really makes sense right now you know that we're in a worldwide pandemic and people are storming the cap capital and they're believing that the president uh the election was stolen you know? well, what is how do you feel about uh like hip-hop's place in this social climate of cancel culture existing and no i think that i think that a lot of people you know just because they're not being agreed with. They're using cancel culture as an excuse to um, to kind of hold beliefs that they shouldn't be holding. You know, instead of thinking critically about what's going on or looking at the deep structure of a situation, they would rather um, point fingers, which is easier, you know. And what's missing here is the fine nuance, you know, to some of these arguments. You know, if someone uh, says something as, as absurd, like the Kanye West thing, you know, like slavery is a choice thing. <laughs> Obviously, you have to check that yeah. person, you know, immediately. Like I just, uh, I, the complete absurdity of something like that just deserves to be called out. Exactly. That's not canceling at all. That's telling the truth. Do you think, do you think you were able to like capture that and express that on the album? 
I don't, I don't know. I think all artists kind of fail at their vision, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I did my best to, to, to kind of um, shape that in a way that I think other people would be um, asking questions about it, you know. Like, instead of kind of preaching at them or telling them what they're supposed to think or telling them what's supposed to be true, I thought that the bigger win would be to have them question and think about it for themselves and come to those conclusions by presenting them kind of evidence in a different way, you know? And I feel like that's what art's supposed to do. Instead of being like didactic didactic and telling you what uh, this means, you're supposed to kind of interpret it and kind of find the meaning too, you know? So it's like a co-construction. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I achieved what I wanted to achieve, um, but I, I am very proud of the record. Well, for folks listening who want to answer that question for themselves, where can they go check out your music? Uh, the best place to go is to my website. It's www.chuckycampbellmusic.com. And Chucky is with an I and an E. <laughs> so, Not like the demonic possessed. <laughs> right, yeah. Doll. Okay. It's Curious Incidents and Cancel Culture. Um, or if you Google it, it'll pop up all over the place. It's It's on Spotify and... It's been. It did really well. It's an EP, so um, I was I was happy the way the way it performed, especially during the pandemic. So hey, yeah, y'all gotta make sure y'all go check out Chucky Campbell and his his work. It's all on YouTube and all on the internet, man. Thank you for coming through again. Yeah, not a problem at all, man. All right, all right peace and blessings. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts Connect the alarm Change the podcast you stream Connect the snooze Ten more minutes to dream Connect the shower Lather up with the news Sports talk Comedians or movie reviews Connect with that three hour Philosophy show Change the drive into work In traffic so slow Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. 
Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Author Michael Eric Dyson said something when talking about Colin Kaepernick that kind of stuck with me. He said, cancel culture is the internalization of the of an ethic of white supremacy. And it's with the Colin Kaepernick situation that should pretty much inform you whenever you're talking to someone or whenever you hear somebody complaining about cancel culture, just think about Colin Kaepernick, point blank period. Like, just think about the situation, right? You have somebody who did something that wasn't politically correct. And as a result, he had a rabid PC mob that wouldn't hear him out and wouldn't show empathy and refused to lend any sort of good faith interpretation to the context of his side of the story. And as a result, he got fired from his job. So whenever you hear any of these motherfuckers talking about, oh, council culture this, how come I can't speak on this college campus? I guarantee you 90% of them saying that would tell you, oh, college Kaepernick, he needs to shut up. He needs to do what he's told. Stand up for the flag. Salute the troops. So, you know, that's why at the end of the day, a lot of this shit is cap and I don't, I don't buy any of it. We've talked a lot in recent episodes about um, the MAGA rappers who, like, in a sense were canceled. I mean, they were, like, criticized online, but as we've discussed as well in previous episodes, like, I'm not sure if it really hit, hurt their pockets or that they like, came out in support of Trump or anything like that. Um, Trina, um, as another example, rapper Trina called protesters during the George Floyd protest animals, and she was allegedly canceled for it. Um, apparently, this is super disturbing to me, Lil Boozy paid an adult woman to give oral sex to his son and pup and publicly attacked famed basketball players, transgender son, and he was canceled, allegedly. And I say allegedly because I think if they were to put out new music, its success would be determined how hot they are and by none of those controversies. I mean, akin to like, we talked about Lil Wayne on one of the most recent episodes, like his new album, this new music, like probably, like I don't know how it was doing, but I wouldn't be surprised if it flopped because it sucks and not necessarily because he came out in favor of Trump. It's really about your artistic production and how people value it because um, people, you know, end up bobbing their heads and like dancing in the club to all sorts of problematic rappers all the time. It's really about the quality of your music. I mean, does anybody famous barring them committing like serious crimes and shit like that, but is anybody famous ever been successfully canceled for some shit that they said like i mean has that happened i'm not i'm not sure but like you know whenever they've dug up somebody's old tweets or and somebody's been caught on camera say, has this like actually tangibly affected anybody's career because none of the people that we just talked about i don't think their career is going to be affected by it. you know like you just said if people aren't going to buy a new trina album it's going to be because nobody is really checking for Neutrina music as opposed to oh man I was a Trina fan but then she said like I don't just think I don't think her fans are even looking at caring about that shit I would but I don't think her fans are <laughs> Little Wayne's definitely not canceled <laughs> you know what I'm saying he's he's gonna he's gonna do do his numbers when he comes out Kanye West whenever he drops a new album he's gonna do his numbers so Lin-Manuel Miranda face claims his renowned musical Hamilton whitewashed crimes of the U.S. founding fathers 
That's cool, but when it happened, there was a good amount of hip-hop fans crying cancel culture despite the man himself tweeting, all criticisms are valid. The sheer tonnage of complexities and failings of these people I couldn't get, or wrestled with, but cut. I took six years and fit as much as I could into a two and a half hour musical and did my best. It's all fair game. That's interesting. The people who are super opposed to cancel culture will freak out about celebrities they like, receiving criticism, even when those celebrities themselves embrace that process of accountability, in my opinion. That's pretty much just what Chucky was saying. And Lynn had the right sort of perspective of it. But it's like, yo, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Just because people don't like something that someone did doesn't mean that they're being canceled. That means that a motherfucker is telling you they have a problem with you. And you can either be like, oh, damn, you have a problem with me? Damn, what did I do wrong? How can I fix this? How can I be better? Or you can say, yeah, I don't give a fuck if you got a problem with me. Kiss my ass. But don't fucking cry about your being canceled and, oh, this is cancel culture. Oh, my God. Did you hear this? 400 people, 400 of my million Twitter followers are upset that I did something. Why are you canceling me? It's... It sounds fucking pathetic after a point. Atlanta rapper T.I., Mr. T.I.P. Do they still call T.I.T.I.P.? Anyway, T.I. said, all this cancel culture I think is fake. Like Jay-Z said, first they hate you, then they love you, then they hate you again. You'll cancel Kanye. you cancel someone like Kanye. Now, I don't agree with his views. There are a lot of things he says, a lot of positions and perspectives he speaks from that I have no agreeance with, but that's not going to take away from the fact that he's a phenomenal artist and he makes great music, T.I. said. But you'll cancel him, but at the same time, when someone like Gucci does blackface, then you're cool with that. So you'll keep wearing Gucci, but you'll cancel Kanye. No, nigga, you'll keep wearing Gucci. (laughs) Yo, man. I don't understand. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I just, I'm just reading the news. I don't re- claim to understand it. I don't know what the fuck any of that shit means. But it's like, no, I don't wear Gucci and I'm not going to be listening to Kanye. And it's just a personal decision. And I think that's all that any point that anybody was making. The few people who were willing to go that far, that's all they were saying. I didn't hear any sort of calls for A, this company shouldn't sell the new Yeezys or like, yo, Kanye's record label should drop them. Even after all the slavery was a choice shit, I didn't hear anybody calling for that shit. There was just, you know, a decent chunk of people who were like, oh, Kanye's fucking with the Nazis. I don't fuck with Kanye anymore. And that's it. Now, if the point that T.I. is trying to make that, nah, you can't do that. That's canceling. You gotta buy his new album or else you're part of the PC mob. Get the fuck out of here with that dumb shit. Okay, that is gonna do it for us today, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget to go out and check out uh, Chucky Campbell's stuff. And don't forget to check me out, my new song, Sundance, coming out February 12th. Hey, shameless promotion. February 12th, Dope Knife, new song, Sundance. Check it out, Spotify, YouTube, all that shit. Um... I feel like rapping. Yo, Joel, let a brother get a beat. Check, check, check. Dope. Waiting on reparations. 
dope knife is in effect Why you hating a brother The only thing that I'ma cancel is a date with your mother I'm like a motherfucking all-star Knock it out the ballpark Keep it short and simple, dog. I never been a tall dog Handsome Take the rap game Hold it for ransom The only rap nigga That used to listen to Hanson Pouring beers And yelling cheers Like Teddy dancing I got B-boys in my squad Who steady dancing I'm about to bug out And cause a fucking wreck If Biden and Democrats Don't send me another check I don't know what the hell It's taking long Why I had to make the song Need them reparations What the hell you people waiting on Imagine for a second that your name is Joanne Rowland and you feeling the heat for a tweet that's so transphobic. Now you're crying out cancel culture cause all your fans notice. Why can't I just be a bigot and weep on the friend's shoulder? Well, if it isn't the consequences of all my shitty acts, coming up to catch it. Isn't it so sad you gotta answer to the people who made it so you can buy your fancy mansions? Being heckled on the internet, what a total disaster. Get a grip, take an out of it. This is how bad it gets, and trust me, girl, you are much luckier than the average. All the rest of us are broke as shit between the bills and rent. You get to sit on your estate being hated for filthy rich. Hey, yo, my name's Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. And we are waiting on reparations. Hurry up. See you next week. Waiting on Reparations is a production of iHeartRadio. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the south side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.